So anybody out there who's lost their job, and there's a lot of them, this might be the greatest learning moment of your life, setting you on a much better path if you're open to accepting it. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Today, our guest is Heather McGowan. She's a future of work strategist and helps leaders prepare their people and organizations for the fourth industrial revolution, and is also the author of the newly released book, The Adaption Advantage. She speaks and advises extensively on the future of work all over the world, which of course notably contains the rapid advancement of technology, which is shifting the domains of human knowledge work. In this emerging future, humans must continually learn and adapt, and this transition comes with a really significant overload. McGowan's academic work has included roles at Rhode Island School of Design, Becker College, and Jefferson University, where she was the strategic architect of the first undergraduate college focused exclusively on innovation. In 2019, Heather was appointed to the faculty at the Swinburne Centre for the New Workforce in Australia, and it was wonderful to have her come down under to to join um, some of our work down here. She also runs a think tank called Work to Learn, because as we'll hear, McGowan believes that in the third industrial revolution, we learned once. And of course, now with the current realities and shifting um, converging technologies, we need to work in order to learn continuously. Heather, it's fantastic to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I've been really enjoying the book, of course, but we, we always ask the, this question when we start this podcast, which what is or are the big questions that you've been exploring most over your career and, and in your life generally? Well, there's, there's many questions I've been exploring over <laughs> my career, but the one I'm working on lately and most acutely over the last six months or more is how much uncertainty can a human being take? Um, because when Chris Shipley and I wrote the book, Adaptation Advantage, we, we wrote it in summer to early fall 2019. Right. Coronavirus for most of us did not exist. I mean, coronaviruses have existed, but there was no global pandemic. There was no lockdown. There was no massive, what I'm calling a massive social experiment, mm. but there was uh, accelerated technology growth that was starting to um, decouple people from jobs and, and tasks from within jobs. It was sort of was a beginning of a big unbundling. Mm. And the, the only people I found out there speaking about the future work over the last five, 10 years were people talking about how technology was going to consume all of work and make a useless class of humans. And yeah. I just didn't find that to be true. So that's what started me on the trajectory. But um, since the virus has kind of upended everything that's a norm for us, uh, the question I'm asking now is how much uncertainty can we take? Because the central thesis of the adaptation advantage is the future work is learning adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means not only do you have to rethink how you do things, but maybe even how you define yourself and then leadership completely transforms from driving productivity to inspiring human potential on learning tours. And all of these things, you don't have a fixed sense of a lot of things, not a fixed process, not a fixed identity. So that big question of how much uncertainty can we take is, is one that's forefront for me right now. Yeah, so I, 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 like, I really like that as a question. That's one that we're all struggling with, frankly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And of course, the idea, and your book covers much of this, as I'm sure your work does, you know, that things are accelerated and really the, the pace of change has never been as fast as it is right now. And of course, it will never be as slow as, as it is 
right. at this point in time. Yep. So this is the idea that right. change is not just fast, it is accelerating in nature. So, I mean, right. take us through, you know, see the law of accelerating returns, some of the things we know about technology, and then I'd love to talk about the piece around identity, because I find that incredibly compelling, Heather, you know, sure. in this uncertain world, it's not just about the new ideas, it's letting go of the old in some ways. That's right. about who we right. are and our identities as well, particularly with the way that we show up at work, if we do physically or otherwise. <laughs> But also, you right, know, you know, right. all those pieces around, you know, the question that we should never ask, which is, well, what do you do? You know, so right. yeah, take us through, take us through what you've, what you've been exploring, what you've been noticing. Um, and of course, COVID has accelerated that. Right, right, right. So the, the book's divided in three parts and the book was really written over the course of probably five years. Um, when I would finish a talk and I was doing about 50 a year, people would come up to me and say, do you, that was so much information. It was so great, but I need more time to digest it. Do you have, you know, a video I can take home? Do you have a book? Do you have something? And so what I did over the course of the last hundred talks prior to writing the book was sort of ask people, what struck you the most? What shifted your thinking the most? What um, left you wondering or what left you engaged enough to think, now I know something I can do, as opposed to when people talk about accelerated technology, it leaves people with paralysis. My goal is to help people take that first step. Yeah. And so out of that came this kind of three, three parts. And that's uh, Chris Shipley and I wrote the book in three parts. The first is um, the context of change. And it was pre-virus, so it was technology-driven change. So technology-driven change, if you follow Moore's law, which is all this stuff does follow, including the virus, it's exponential, which means every step is double the prior step. So by definition, the slowest rate of change for the rest of your life is right now. So if you're exhausted from yesterday, you're not ready for tomorrow. And it's, it's a lot for humans to take because yeah. human adaptation is, is linear with sequential steps. And if you look at linear and exponential steps next to each other, they kind of start out together. You know, linear steps are one, two, three, four, five. Exponential steps are one, two, four, eight, 16. Each step is double. So those first few steps are not that far apart, but as further you get along the path, the further they get apart. And that was what we were starting to feel with technology. Now, what, the virus did was just accelerate that. Um, McKinsey said they thought that in the first 90 days post-virus, we fast-forwarded either five to 10 years, somewhere between five and 10 years. Mm. If you look at it, every company that could work remotely did work remotely or does work remotely. Every learning organization from K-12 to corporate learning to universities went 100% online inside of two weeks. Yeah. Um, I worked for about a decade in higher ed and for presidents and provosts and you know, they would all tell me, oh, that faculty member will never work online, or that program will never work online, or this will never. And, well, they did. They did inside of two weeks, and they did so successfully. Mm -hmm. So the good news is we're a highly adaptive species when pressed. Well, a question I'm asking myself now is how much more can we take? Yeah. And is there any way we can sort of slow this down to catch our breath? Mm -hmm. So that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book delves into identity. And the third part of the book delves into leadership. And I think you wanted to talk about identity. So I'll just leave it there and let you ask uh, questions about yeah, identity. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a wonderful framing. And I think one of the key things for any leaders in particular, but is understanding not necessarily the details of the technology, but, but the trends or the principles. So Moore's law, for example, and the law of accelerating turns more generally. I mean, and everyone now knows about an exponential curve. Whereas before, right. you know, because we are linear, our psychology is kind of wired to be linear we kind of find it difficult to realize, you know, that one step, you know, taken 30 times in a linear way is 30. 
and one step in an exponential space, you know, is whatever it is, eight times around the world. So, you know, there's this, yeah. this kind of disconnect that I think we are having to train ourselves to be more and more exponential. And, and that question about how much is too much, uh, you know, the idea that our, our minds can stretch and maybe once stretch, retain that new shape. Um, but I'm sure all of us have some sense of collective fatigue at the kind of, at the, just the, the sheer pace of change. Um, and there are things yeah. like information diets and other things to try to take control and, and clearly collective well-being. And we've had this conversation with, with many of our guests is becoming more and more seen as, you know, a shared destination of success as opposed to some of the other kind of more narrow metrics. So take, take us into the identity piece though, Heather. I'm super, super interested in this um, because of course, you know, in our work in education, we offer, it's not just about the knowledge, it's not just about the skills, it's about the character and the disposition. And of course, identity is tied up into that. It's who do we think we are? What is our self-concept? So right. how, what, what did you discover um, in, in kind of trying to place down some of those compelling ideas as, as people were finding them in that piece around identity? What are the questions we should not ask and what, what might be the ones that we do? Yeah, so I started, um, I got down on this road maybe four or five years ago. My niece, Izzy, at the time was four. She called me up one day and she said, Auntie Heather, it's career day tomorrow. And I thought, you're four years old. Seriously, it's career day. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I want to be a unicorn. But my teacher told me that wasn't realistic. And I thought, probably most of the jobs that she will do one day may not even exist yet or certainly won't look the way they look today. So why are we asking a young person to pick a realistic future when the world's never been moving so quickly? And I was also at the time working uh, for a university. It was so focused on pick your major before you step foot on campus or now it's dial into Zoom. Don't take anything outside your major. And I remember talking to the faculty. I said, how many of you guys are working in the field of your undergraduate major? Raise your hand. All the hands in the room went up. I said, you know what? You're not normal. And that may be a big part of the problem. Yeah. Because statistically, from the research I've seen, it's less than a third of the people out there work in the field of their undergraduate major, and that's even if they go to university. Mm. Um, and so we're setting these traps that are hindering adaptation. And then I found some other research that job loss can take, take longer to recover from than the loss of a primary relationship. Wow. Because it's the loss of everything you've been you know, trained to believe that you are. So I thought, wow, there's something to this identity thing. And so I started talking about that three or four years ago. And then um, as we were writing the book, I was like, you know, we need to really understand more about identity formation. So we interviewed um, a psychologist from Europe who told us, you know, how we go through these phases of um, exploring our, what we believe. Um, and we go through that, you know, you know, do I believe what my parents believe? Do I believe their religious beliefs? Do I believe what they think about the world, what they think about uh, different races to what they think about politically, whatever the, the issue may be. Some people don't go through that process. Some people never stop going through that process. And there's sort of a narrative we tell ourselves about our identity. And I thought about how much our system of education, um, you know, I'm in the U.S., so maybe more acute in the U.S., I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but I think it's true for much of the developed world is really honing you towards this singular occupational self yeah. And research out of the Foundation for Young Australians found that a young person graduating today may have 17 different jobs across five different industries, but our entire system is designed to get you to that first job. You know, K-12 was a sorting process to figure out who's going to university. The tail end of K-12 high school was to get you into the right university. The university accepts you based on a program and a major, mostly geared towards probably a singular job. And they declare their success based upon your 
how quickly you were placed and what your starting salary is. And that is the first of a much longer journey that's going to be marked more by how you transition between those opportunities. So that's when I started to say in the past, we learned once in order to work and now we're going to have to work in order to learn continuously. And I use visuals like, you know, we used to have these discrete bands of education, career, retire. And yeah. once you get out of one band, you got into the other band, you never went back. And now I think it's overlapping bands of learn, leverage, and longevity and leverage being to signify that work and learning are a combined act. So we almost have to rebuild the whole system, but it starts with the expectation. So it's not about any specific skill, more about tapping into the will to acquire and repeatedly shed skills as needed. Yeah, fantastic. We we know the, the idea of learning to learn, for example, or meta learning, your your yeah. understanding about of the process of learning for you. And and the interesting piece is, you know, considering pe- people will make that argument, but clearly about knowledge or skill. And I think the interesting thing um, is that we we also need to and, and I love the quote actually at the beginning of the book, which uh, is from Gilbert, I think. Uh, uh, Dan Gilbert, uh, Works in Progress? Yes, exactly. Human po- beings who are works in progress and mistakenly think they're finished. That's, it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful framing because I think, you know, so much of our systems generally, not just, you know, K-12, is about arriving at a point. And, of course, yeah. it, we can get quite philosophical. People like Alan Watts, for example, you know, Focus on, we, we never actually arrive. We are constantly in a process of emergence. So right. as much as we focus on something, we'll get there and there'll be something else. And so there is no interim. There is only the kind of emergent process of identity formation and contribution. So I'm, I'm really fascinated in that. Um, what would you, it's a personal question. What's been, what's been your journey uh, in terms of learning and identity? Because clearly all these ideas um, are quite compelling. How, how do you feel that, you've embodied them or, you know, really discovered their, their meaning on your own, your own journey, you know, doing some really quite wonderful things um, across, across the world and education and corporate spaces. You know, when you're, when you're a little kid, if you're told you're smart or special, it's a huge trap. And I know so many adults that, you know, were the smartest kids in their high school or the captain of the football team or basketball team or swimming team or whatever it was. And that's the early cast of their identity that they never quite shed. Um, and there's something in the book we talk about called the expertise curse. Mm. Um, and there's a, there was a study done that even if you take a group of people and you deem some people in the group experts, even if they don't have the knowledge and skills to be that experts, they'll discard any information that confronts what's their stated expertise. And I think that happens for a lot of folks. And fortunately for me, I was never meeting expectations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was the kid who always had to have go have her IQ taken because they were like, she seems smart, but her grades aren't so great. She seems like she doesn't have a direction, but she seems to be exploring a lot of things. I don't know where this is going. And unfortunately, I had fantastic parents that encouraged those explorations. So I wasn't, you know, on a track to become a lawyer or doctor or any set thing. Um, my parents just sort of let me go and give me as many resources as they could to travel on that journey. And I had and an incredible number of jobs. And, and I like the, speaking of jobs, I like Steve Jobs' analogy that, uh, or, or, or explanation that his career makes sense looking backwards yeah. but not forwards, that, you know, studying calligraphy led to fonts in the Mac and that sort of thing. And, you know, I started in art school uh, and I got into an art school nobody ever thought I'd get into. It was one of the best in the world and by chance I got in, nobody expected that. Um, and then um, I worked in design 
And then I started asking a bunch of business questions. So I went and got an MBA and I, everybody thought I'd go back to product design, but I ended up going to finance and social responsible investing. And then I landed in academia and then just out of frustration. And I didn't think anybody was really explaining the world as it was sort of rapidly unfolding. I started writing and speaking. First, I wrote on LinkedIn and my second article, 100,000 people read it in 24 hours. And I started getting speaking requests all over the world. And then wow. videos of my talks went viral. And now I have like 15 speakers bureaus that represent me. And this is all I do. So it was, you know, I couldn't have planned it. I didn't apply to be a future work stress. It's a term I made up <laughs> to try to explain some of the things, you know, I'm doing. I think that's going to be true for a lot of people. Yeah. But not everybody can fly like that without a net, you know? Mm. That's a, I mean, that's a really compelling story. And I, I think, you know, even a generation ago, 25 years ago, we would see those people um, with that kind of trajectory as, you know, the exception. Mad. And I, <laughs> Mad, probably. <laughs> and I wonder now, and I, and, I, and I do think, you know, I, I don't know about if you would describe yourself as a pessimist or an optimist. I like to self-identify, although just lightly, so that I can, you know, change my identity as I move forward, as an action-based optimist, because, of course, I think we need to, you know, envisage the, the best version of the future and then, you know, deliberately act and behave in ways to try to bring that about. But I, I wonder about young people today, and many of them, you know, the idea of a side hustle is just the vernacular of young people, you know. So yeah. this idea, I think, of, of being far more agile, and I think, I mean, you do speak to this as well about, letting go of occupational identities. And so the questions we should not ask and the way that we narrow or converge systems towards a singular point isn't just unhelpful, it's counterproductive often to what we know is going to be the emerging future. Yeah, and I think if, uh, if I were to sort of frame how we need to treat young people, uh, stop complaining that they want more. We have trashed the world for them in so many ways. We've not addressed climate change. That's the shame of the last few generations. We have left them with a with an exponential, uh, um, uh, an existential challenge. Yeah. We've got issues of income inequality in most of the developed world we have not addressed. I think we should give them whatever tools we can and get out of their way because they've proven every single time, whether it's you know, in the US uh, with the Parkland kids who, yeah. who stood up and created a movement around to stop school shooting or it's Greta in Sweden around climate change, they are ready to lead and we, mm -hmm. to get out, we need to get out of their way and let them do what they're on. They are naturally entrepreneurial. They yeah. grew up with digital tools, so they don't think about that as any singular skill or ending skill. They just think it's part of their literacy. Yeah. Um, and so we just need to coach and support them in any way we can. I'd love to. I'd love you to talk a bit about leadership because leadership is an action, not a role. Uh, and as yeah. we we're just in terms of talking about young people right now, so you know, what is it about leading in this continuous change environment? that shifts what a leader, not just what a leader does or what they know, but ultimately who they are and the kind of presencing piece to this, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, how this links to things like consciousness development, for example, the self-organizing mind as opposed to the socializing mind. It's some of the really interesting work that's being done in that space. So, you know, the idea of evolving leadership as an entire construct. You know, what, what are some of the interesting things that we should pay attention to? Well, the second and third industrial revolutions, and some people trash those terms, but they do give us a framework to think about periods of time. So that, yeah. it, the second industrial revolution was electrification and um, automation of some manufacturing. The third industrial revolution was computerization. And the fourth is sort of the augmented human and Internet of Things and this merging of cyber, physical and biological systems. 
in that second and third, leadership was a right. You know, you were sort of deemed a leader. You were the expert. You were the boss, not to be questioned. Your job was to just drive as much productivity as you could out of humans or machines. And the fourth industrial revolution, if you accept that framing of just the, the shifts we're making, is really about let's let the machines do the things that the machines do well. Let's let the humans do the things that humans do well. And when you, when you parse it out that way, it's humans tinker, humans improvise, humans innovate. Humans are innately curious if you let them. So it becomes much more of a responsibility than a right. It becomes much more about inspiring human potential. It's much more about being a vulnerable leader who can establish psychological safety so you can lead teams on learning tours. And that leadership becomes sort of a bit of role fluidity. Different people on the team emerge as leaders in different phases of the process. So it really, some of the identity stuff really comes into play because you can't be that expert who can't be questioned yeah. in this world that I, that I envision. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so take us, from, take us from the leadership perspective into an organizational one. And you know, specifically, you know, schools, universities, companies. But what is it about that human potential um, in a in a team like setting that that you're seeing is is crucial around you know putting adaption for example in the center <laughs> the way that we design job roles for example you know really quite tangible ways that that we might be able to restructure and again COVID has as as you say just shifted really the the Overton window in what's considered reasonable. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah. entire billion dollar institutions just really pivoting overnight, shifting their entire learning model. Yeah. So what, do you, what is it about the organizational structures that you think we should think about? Well, I think it's important to understand that in the last, uh, say, 20 years or so, and then going back to, you know, maybe 65 years, companies lasted longer, businesses lasted longer, business models lasted longer, products lasted longer. So in an organization, you could set up a sort of rigid organizational structure because you were sort of setting things up to be repetitive, cognitively repetitive, physically repetitive. And so the product you were producing didn't change for set periods of time. So processes we could become sort of stayed. And now we're looking at a world where if it's meant to return a predictable, an algorithm is going to soon be able to do it. So the other work is the messy stuff where you're not necessarily just mass producing a unit of value but a lot of times you're not even working on the answer to a question but you're forming the question itself so that suggests you know you can't have a rigid box where you say this is the job and i need to find somebody who fits in this box based upon past skills and experience because mostly you're looking for somebody to do something they've never never done before so you're suddenly screening people not based on what they can do today but what they might be able to do tomorrow are their values aligned with the, with the culture and the mission of the organization? Do they have the capacity to step into whatever thing you're starting to do today, knowing that you're mostly hiring them to do an unknown tomorrow? Um, that's a very different proposition. It's a very different screening process. It's a very yeah. different organizational structure. It's much more fluid and very, very different leadership. Yeah. I mean, again, there's, there's some really interesting, I would say, semi-large-scale experiments of this this work. So, you know, we can think about reinventing organizations by Lalu and the idea of teal organizations. Think about Zappos, for example, and moving to holacracy, yep. 
where you just yep. dissolve all hierarchy. And of course, one of the criticisms, and it's an interesting one, is that, well, you know, when organizations do these things, you know, a good fifth of their workforce leave because, you know, they, it, it's so different. And I think this kind of just links to the, our point, how much ambiguity is too much ambiguity. Heather, I'd love you to just make the case for adaption. I would say most people listening to this podcast, you know, as educators and leaders would clearly see the require the, the need. But there are some yep. people that say, well, you know, if it if it ain't broken, don't fix it, you know. And clearly it's broken <laughs> in many regards. You know, there yeah, are I mean, ways. <laughs> what do we need to say to those people to really, you know, to create a compelling case for change? I mean, people that say, well, the education system works by and large, you know. Uh, or, yeah, that's, that's a, such a funny thing because that when you screen, like, at least in, I know this data from the U.S., you will screen faculty and administrators in, in higher ed institutions. And I believe it's also true with K-12. And they'll say, oh, yeah, the education system works just as it is, you know, 70% agree. And then you ask the students and, you know, 40% agree. And then you ask the employers and 20% agree. So we've got a mismatch between the three sets of stakeholders. Uh, it may work uh, in your view in terms of you are producing the, the same sort of product you produced 10 years ago, but the market in the market for students that, you know, get hired upon graduation from K-12 or K-12 in the university systems is looking for something very different. I mean, the, all the work that I did, almost all the work I did in university was undoing the work that was done in K-12. Will it be on the test is the first thing you got to try to get rid of. Because most of the work we do in the world in the last two decades has been a 50% increase in collaboration, yet we focus on finding the singular right answer and patting people on the back for doing it when that singular right answer is completely irrelevant in the world of work. Uh, that's, that's really compelling. And I, I, I like this, this notion of, um, and others have spoken about this, you know, how do we stay with the problem longer? You know, how do we actually how do we do problem finding for, as opposed to just yeah. the problem solving, which, you know, often or collaborative problem solving that often gets a lot of attention, you know? Um, yeah. If I, if I could just on that, on that note, um, the best I've seen on this in terms of K-12 and I don't know how you scale it because it was done at a small scale, but I have some folks working on scaling it is the, the Khan lab school in San Francisco, which is the folks from Khan, Khan Academy said, if we made a face-to-face -face school, we'd have to experiment with our own children. It's only fair. So it's all children or it started as all children who worked for Khan Academy. And they said, okay, let's just throw everything out and rebuild as if we build today for the world that we think these, these young people are going to enter. So no grades, uh, no grade levels, um, no set subject matter time. Um, the day has a, a beginning and end to it, but uh, students were organized by their independence level as opposed to their age. That's interesting. Uh, everybody works through competencies as opposed to seat time on um, subjects. Everybody has a passion project, so they're constantly connecting to their sense of agency. Mm. And everybody is a teacher as well as a learner. So if I'm particularly good in math, then I am, it's my responsibility to help others. If I'm particularly good in languages, it's my responsibility to help others. And that reinforces your own learning. Mm. I went into this classroom. It was unbelievable. These kids were so self-directed doing things at levels so far above what they'd be if you put them in a class and said, well, you're 10, so you've got to sit here and have math for 45 minutes, and then you need to go sit here and have social studies for 35 minutes. If you move through the competencies, get right to your research project and your teaching. I really feel 
you know, the key word here in terms of the way that we design schools might be liberation. <laughs> and, and that's not yeah. just for, you know, for all the human beings in that system. So, you know, t- teachers overwhelmingly choose to become teachers because they want to make a positive impact. And then somehow right. we, we just, you know, handcuff them with these particular types of frames that yeah. eventually they, we all get stuck in, you know, and that, yeah, it's it's really interesting. The the piece around, and this I think links to the you know the expert paradox or the expertise um, trap. Curse. Yeah, curse. Yeah. Which you know the idea that how do we have a novice mindset and how do we go back to first principles? So, and this is yeah. why really I think you know just a little bit of reform or shaping around the edges probably is not going to get us where we need to be. And the thing that I've I think is quite interesting heather is the idea that the market in a corporate space the market just makes those decisions you know as the old saying is you innovate or you evaporate you know you effectively have to respond because you know there is an agency and autonomy in your customer or your client base And and i think in a lot of other systems we we just kind of are running on old assumptions and past paradigms and so the big question that i you know i often explore in these conversations is how do we shift the entire system from one that's mechanistic and kind of set in a particular paradigm to one that's more of an emerging learning ecosystem where people see it ecologically with all of the different factors playing a role. Uh, and I think, you know, the Khan Lab School is a great example of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. There, there are a bunch of examples of people experimenting like that, but we have to kind of look back to how did we get here? Yeah. And we started compulsory education because we needed farm workers to learn to be factory workers. And that's why the desks were all in a row, just like they were, they were going to stand in rows in, in the factory floor. And we just haven't ever broken away from that paradigm. And then, you know, the more we need to prove learning puts us in a situation where we're asking students to basically be algorithmic in their thinking, which means we're actually preparing people to compete with robots. So, I wonder if this virus is is a moment that allows us to stop and say, well, what are we doing? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, on that note, I have to say the teachers out there who are, who are zoomed out, and I know you're absolutely zoomed out or teamed yeah. out or whatever, whatever platform you're on, my heart goes out to you because I know that you're doing the best you can to try to keep uh, kids engaged right now. And parents, all the parents out there are also part-time teachers, at, at minimum part-time teachers because they're trying to get their kids to be in Zoom. So everybody's working double time in every direction. So it's a hard conversation to have right now, but it's also a really important one to have right now because we might be doing things right now that are completely futile. Mm. That's that's really interesting. I I wonder what your perspective would be on, you know, it has been called the great pause or the great reckoning. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Tomfoolery. Yeah. That's right. You know, crises like COVID-19, they disrupt, but they also reveal um, mm-hmm. So yeah. are we paying attention? You know, it's the Netflix question. Are we, still, yeah. are we still there? Are we paying attention? And so, you know, what, what's your hope from this point forward, you know, as a futurist, uh, particularly around work and learning systems, what's your hope that we might seize um, from this particular moment in our collective human journey that will get us closer? You know, what do you, what do you think some of those steps you know, might take, not, not that we can never predict or be certain, but perhaps we can kind of be hopeful. Well, I think this forced social experiment is telling us a few things. Um, Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. And his uh, 
analogy he meant towards, you know, a broken business model can be concealed by a raging market. But I think you could take that same analogy to say that, you know, when everything seems to be going okay and it's not being revealed, we don't realize how much racism we have or income inequality or political unrest or, you know, disparities, health disparities, and the virus is certainly making that clear. But when it comes to education, I think that in education and work, both in that first two weeks to 90 days, everybody could teach online, went online, everybody could work from home, work from home. Now what you need to figure out is instead of saying, how do we go back? It's yeah. what did we learn in this moment? What kinds of things can be taught online? What kinds of ways can we help students be self-directed learners so that they do projects on their own and they start directing their own learning because it's, they're not in a classroom with other students and with a teacher looking at them. They have a little more free time um, to manage their own calendar and time. How can we make sense of that? And how can we, is, from a work standpoint, you know, if we can do everything on Zoom, why would we ever go to an office again? I actually think we do need to go to offices again. I think there are serendipitous conversations. I yeah. think there are subtleties the way we communicate in person that are different. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, Microsoft did an analysis because they have, you know, teams and calendars. They analyze their own data that meetings were kind of always standardly set in an hour, 45 minutes. But now everybody's doing them in 20 to 30 minutes. And there are more of them. So the way we organize and communicate is changing. Um, I think we actually have a lot of opportunity with this technology to be more transparent uh, about our biases. Mm. Like, for example, if you and I are on Zoom and there are five people on here and there are four men and one woman or four white people and one minority, if the person who's, who's ever the minority is in the group, whether it's a racial or gender minority, can't get a word in edgewise and is constantly interrupted. If we were in a face-to-face -face conversation, if I were that person, I would say, hey, listen, I tried to talk to you, you guys kept interrupting me. That you might say, well, you're imagining it. If you're doing it over technology, there's a digital exhaust you can sort through there. You mm -hmm. could become more aware of your own behaviors. And not in a punitive way, but in a way that we can all be more inclusive. I mean, the whole DNI, the second I is inclusivity. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of opportunities for transparency with kind of sorting through the digital exhaust we're creating. Um, there's also an opportunity to see all the different ways that telepresence can save us time. You know, if you can dial up your doctor and say, hey, listen, I got this rash on my elbow. Do I need to come in? And they say, oh, no, you just put some antibiotic ointment on it. You'll be fine. You just saved, you know, three hours. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of ways that I think we're going to learn a tremendous amount out of this period of time. And I'm hopeful that we come out of it with, better mechanisms for understanding when learning takes place, when it can be self-directed, when it can be through telepresence, and when we need to be in person for both work and learning. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and of course, potentially have, an, have a higher or you know a he healthier, more productive lifestyle emerge because we have thrown off some of those. Effectively, the, the pause has been long enough in most parts of the world in fact, in some, yep. the danger for us in some, some parts in Australia is that we've kind of successfully beaten it. So that we're not perhaps considering those deeper questions as much. But, you know, you know the yeah, in the U.S. we're slower learners, but maybe we'll get more out of it. <laughs> maybe so. Um, and I'm really, it's been a fabulous conversation and a real thrill to speak with you. I want to ask you a final question, which really is, you know, in a sentence, what is, what is your take-home message for learners about you know, the future of work and, and the future of society? You know, we always celebrate the successes. 
and we think about the highlights on whether it be our learning journey or our work journey being, you know, getting that job, defending that dissertation, getting that degree, getting into that institution, um, successful presentations at work, whatever it may be, you actually don't learn much from successes. You learn a lot from hard moments. And in the book, uh, Christian and I both talk about some hard moments in our lives. It's the stuff that kind of rocks you back on your feet and sometimes goes right to your core that gets you to think differently. It hurts sometimes. So anybody out there who's lost their job, and there's a lot of them, yeah. this might be the greatest learning moment of your life, setting you on a much better path if you're open to accepting it. So I say, you know, I think it's the Navy or the Marines or something that says embrace the suck in the, in the U.S. military. It sort of is like that, you know. Take those hard moments because they can be tremendous learning opportunities that you know strengthen you in new and interesting ways. Heather McGowan, an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And congratulations on the book and uh, really wish you well into the future, exploring what, what, what it might be for all of us. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.